This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, it is our custom to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was our substitute. He paid the penalty for each and every sin on the cross. As a result, we can have salvation simply by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of making a bargain with God. It's not a matter of religious ritual. It's not a matter of morality. It is simply trusting in Christ alone for salvation. But then what happens after we're saved? What about sin? See, we still have a sin nature. We still commit sins. Sometimes, uh, especially if you're saved as a young person, you surprise and shock yourself as you get older with the sins you commit. They don't surprise or shock God because in His omniscience, He knew about those sins from eternity past. Jesus Christ still paid for those sins. We don't lose our salvation no matter what happens. It is secure. We are held in the Father's hand and in the Lord's hand. Tightly held in that grip, we are secure forever. Nevertheless, when we sin, it's just like a disobedient child with parents. We break fellowship with the Lord. So it is necessary to recover fellowship, which at the same time means that we are restored to our Christian walk by means of the Holy Spirit so that we can grow and mature as Christians, so that we can study the Word, learn the Word, advance in the Christian life. Therefore, we always make sure that we have a few moments of silent prayer at the beginning of each service to make sure you're in fellowship, give you the opportunity in silent prayer to identify to God any known sins in your life, to admit or acknowledge these sins. 1 John 1.9 teaches us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that at the instant that you admit that sin to God, we're cleansed, we're forgiven, and we can uh, resume our advance in the Christian life. So before we begin, let's pray. After a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have today to gather together to study your word, that the study of your word is the highest form of worship. You have revealed to us your very thoughts, and it is our opportunity to study those thoughts, 
to understand your plan, your purposes, your promises, your provisions for us, that we might glorify you with our lives. Father, you have provided everything for us at the cross. You provided your son to go to the cross, to die as our substitute. And Father, we have your word, which is the written revelation of who you are. It's called the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And so, Father, as we study your word, we are mindful of the fact that these are eternal truths that we must pay attention to. Now, Father, we pray that under the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who guides and directs us, the Holy Spirit who is our teacher, the one who fills us, that during this time that we may be responsive to your word, to its challenge, and that we may be able to appreciate more fully all that you have done for us in our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on this Resurrection Sunday, it is appropriate that we are studying the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't separate what took place on the cross or the resurrection from who Jesus Christ is. Now, there's all kinds of strange ideas floating around today about who Jesus Christ is, a lot of different answers to that question. And we have been in the midst of this study now for several months, and some of you are new and others of you are just visiting this morning, and you're here with a tough nut to crack this morning. So you're just going to have to sort of buckle down a little bit, and and hopefully you'll be able to work your way through this. These are not easy things to understand that we're studying right now. We took off with basics in terms of who Jesus Christ is at the beginning of our, of our study. And we saw that in the Old Testament, there were the clear predictions that God would provide a Messiah who was fully God. Furthermore, prophecies in the Old Testament also taught that he would be fully human. You never have this come together in the way you do in the New Testament. Because of the virgin birth, you have the union of undiminished deity with true humanity. Actually, undiminished deity takes on or adds to itself true humanity. This is what is called the hypostatic union. This is a technical theological term we've been studying the last few weeks, which has to do with the union of deity and humanity in the one person, Jesus Christ. The term hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which refers to a substantial nature, essence, actual being, or reality. So what the hypostatic union refers to is the union of these two natures. And this is our definition, which you have on the screen. The hypostatic union describes the union of two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ, without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. Now, that's our definition. Now, over the last two or three weeks, we have developed that definition and studied it in some detail in order to understand what we mean by this. This is a, one of the most profound concepts, second only to the concept of the Trinity, understanding how God can be one and three at the same time, that he is one in essence or nature, 
yet he is three in terms of three distinct persons. As we come to the Scripture, we see that the Bible clearly expresses this union of natures in Jesus Christ, that he is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person. And this is not just some abstract concept. You see, sometimes we get the idea that in Christianity, as we study various teachings in Christianity, various doctrines, these ideas often become sort of abstract principles in our thinking. But the Bible never presents these things as simply abstract concepts or philosophical concepts. They're ultimately grounded in the reality of the Trinity and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what we have seen in our study of Philippians 2, that in the first four verses of Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul is challenging the Philippian congregation to unity. Now, we all know that unity sometimes is difficult to achieve because people tend to get across purposes with one another and tend, they sometimes tend to be divisive, and this happens in churches because people have different goals, different understandings. The people's sin natures get in the way, and the next thing you know, you have some sort of division. Now, what happens in many churches is you have nice little moral uh, sermons on a Sunday morning, teaching people how to do this, how to do that, how to have a happy marriage, uh, all kinds of different ethical messages. The Bible never does that. And it is a reflection of a pastor's disrespect for the Word of God to engage in those kinds of application-heavy messages. And we'll, we see a classic example of this in our particular passage in Philippians chapter 2. Paul begins with the very practical, everyday concept of how do you have uh, genuine unity in a con congregation. And he begins in the first part of Philippians by talking about certain realities that they have as part of their spiritual life, as part of the package that God gave them at the instant of salvation. And so we read in a series of conditional clauses, therefore, if, and this is an expression in the Greek, assuming this is true, if there's any consolation in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort of love, and there is, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if there's any affliction and mercy, fulfill my joy. That's the command. How do you fulfill my joy? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Now that's great application. And everybody needs to understand how to do that. But you see, it's not pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps to live with some kind of humility. Paul says you have to understand what this is based in. It's not based in just some sort of abstract ethical system that this is good to be to express this kind of selfless living because these are just nice, high, utopic ideals. He says you have to, they're, they're grounded in a person. They're grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to understand anything about what humility is, if you want to understand anything about how to have real unity and get along with other people, then unless you ground it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's nothing more than empty morality. It's nothing more than meaningless abstract ethics that any unbeliever can do. But it's not based 
on the ultimate Christian virtue, which is genuine or true humility. So we come then to the key passage, which starts in verse 5, where Paul says, Have this attitude, this is a mandate, this is a command. And as we'll see when we start to tear this passage apart, that what he is really saying is think like this. Have this mentality, have this mental attitude, this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he jumps, as Paul does, from this very practical everyday situation into what a lot of people would think is just some sort of abstract theology. But what Paul is saying is if you don't understand the basis, then what you're doing is, is going to be shallow and superficial. And this is why most Christians fall apart in their Christian life. It's because their understanding of the Word of God is shallow and superficial. And then when the storms of life come, they say, well, you know, the Christianity really doesn't work, or I don't know why God hasn't answered my prayer. He must be asleep at the switch. Or maybe he's off worried about what's going on in Iraq, and he's ignoring me for the time being, because they don't know how to think biblically. And this is one of the things that is a hallmark of our teaching here at Preston City Bible Church is that you need to learn how to think biblically because biblical thought is God's thought. It is reality. When the Scripture says, have this thinking in yourselves, we need to be reminded that the Scripture says that we have the mind or the thinking of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. The Bible is the thinking of God. If you want to know how God thinks, then you need to understand the Scriptures. And I don't mean just sort of read it superficially and understand the basic stories, but understand the significance of those episodes. That's why a few years ago I did the series Understanding the Old Testament. Is because we don't just need to know the stories. The stories are there because they communicate a way of thought about life. And so we had the basic orientation to the Old Testament. Now, in this series we're looking at who Jesus Christ is. We've looked at the basic concepts that He's eternal. He's the eternal Son of God. He is fully divine. He's fully human. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in the New Testament. The way in which the deity took on humanity was through the virgin birth, that the two most important doctrines in all of the Bible are the virgin birth of Christ and the resurrection. Without the virgin birth of Christ, you don't have a God-man. You have simply a man who is still a sinner, and therefore he could not have died for us. Without the resurrection, you don't have the victory over death, which is validated through the resurrection, the payment for our sins, which is validated by the, by the resurrection. So Paul says we have to think like Christ thinks. Now, I've said this many times. It's hard enough to think. It's even harder to think about your thinking. But we have to do that. That's what this passage mandates. We have to have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, that means he existed in the essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we have to come back and retranslate the passage so we have a better understanding of what he's saying. But once again, I'm just introducing the significance of what we're looking at. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. There's the key phrase that we're studying. This is the Greek verb kanao, which means to empty. But what does that mean? What did, how did the eternal second person of the Trinity 
empty himself? Did he give up his deity? What happens? See, this is how this is the issue here. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what we have seen in our study so far is that in the early church, they asked two questions. This covered 400 years. Most of you have an understanding of who Jesus Christ is that is far superior to the early church because your understanding is based upon what they hammered out over a three- or 400-year period. Now, they asked two questions. We studied the answer to the first question last Sunday morning. And that first question was, what was Jesus before he came? What was Jesus before the incarnation? What was Jesus before that first Christmas morning? And there were several attempts to answer that question that were made in the early church. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is eternal, that he's the Son of God. But what does that mean? And in the early church, after the death of the last apostle, they tried to answer this question in a little more precise way than the way, than the way the Scripture does. See, the Scripture gives us the raw material, but we have to explain, okay, what exactly is this saying? Well, the first attempt was what was called modalism. And in modalism, the Son is not distinct from the Father. They looked at it this way. You have God who's eternal, and for a while God revealed himself to us as the Father. And then with the incarnation after that first Christmas, he revealed us himself to us as the Son. But the Son is not the Father. I mean, the Son is the Father, just a different manifestation. And then after the ascension of Christ, God reveals himself to us as the Holy Spirit. These are not three distinct persons. They're just three modes of expression. That's why it was called modalism. And in modalism, the Son is not, I mean, the Son is not distinct from the Father. They're just, they're viewed as God is one. There's one essence and one person, essentially. He just puts on different masks. Okay, that was decided to be wrong. That doesn't accurately portray what the Scripture describes. So the next attempt was called adoptionism. Now, what happens in adoptionism is, is they, they've tried to make the son equal to the father. Now they lose that equality. And in adoptionism, the son is considered to be subordinate to the father in essence. So here on the chart, we have eternity past and eternity future. The dotted lines represent time. During that during time, God, of course, is eternal. But Jesus is born, and then he's invested with deity, usually at the baptism by John. He's born just like any human. It's his, he's, a, he's just a man, no different from you or me in terms of even possessing a sin nature. But what happens is at the baptism of Christ, because he's so good, because he's so religious, because he's, he's so different from all others, he has such a heightened sense of religious awareness, God sort of zaps him with deity, and he gets this new power. And that's why this was also called dynamic monarchianism, dynamic meaning power. So he just kind of zapped with deity at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, at the baptism by John. Well, the problem with that is he's not fully God, is he? Because part of deity is eternality, and he's also still got a sin nature. So this makes him fully human, but at the expense 
of His deity. We looked at a comparison between the, the two systems. In adoptionism, you have an emphasis on the unity of God, but it denies the deity of Jesus. It uh, emphasizes His humanity, and then the Holy Spirit's just an impersonal power. It's not really a, different, a distinct person. On the other hand, in modalism, there is still the emphasis on the unity of God, but it emphasizes the deity of Christ at the expense of His humanity. It denies His humanity, and the Holy Spirit is then just a mode of God's existence. So what you have really here is two extremes. On one extreme, they're emphasizing His deity at the expense of His humanity, and at the other hand, they're, they're emphasizing His humanity at the expense of His deity. But the Bible says that Jesus is both. Now, how are we going to explain that? How are we going to understand that? Well, then we had another guy that came along by the name of Arius, and Arius said, well, rather than Jesus getting zapped with deity when he's baptized by John the Baptist, let's say God created him in eternity past, and he's sort of a little God. He's divine, and he's, he, he's, but he's still a creature. The problem is if he's still a creature, he's not the creator. If he's still a creature, he can't fully reveal God. And the Bible says if you want to know what God looks like, you have to look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect expression to humanity of who God is. And if Jesus Christ is just a creature at any level, if he is simply a creature, no matter how, how high he may be above all the other creatures, he still isn't God. You can't know God by knowing Jesus. So Christ according to Arius, was created in eternity past. And he sang this little song that everybody sang in the churches at that time. There was a time when Christ was not. Caused a great furor in the empire, and they brought together a church council called the Council of Nicaea where they clearly articulated the eternality of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God from fully God. He is absolute, undiminished deity, eternal. He was uh, he's begotten and not made. And we went through the Nicene Creed last time. That's the answer to the question, who was Jesus before he came? He has to be fully God. That means he has to be eternal. In his essence, he is not less than God. He has all of the attributes of deity. But he is also fully man. And that leads to the next question, which is the one we're looking at this morning. And that is, what was Jesus when he came? What was Jesus when He came? How do you understand the second person of the Trinity entering into human history? Now, this is once again, this isn't just some sort of abstract concept. We have to realize that in Philippians 2, where Paul exp- explains this, this is a foundation for understanding what real humility is. So you get a lot of people have all kinds of ideas about what humility is. Some people think of humility as something that is... You know, you just let people walk all over you, and that's more the concept of humiliation. That's not what we're talking about here. Some people think of humility as somebody who just who, who can't assert themselves, somebody who's just always uh, down on themselves, have a low self-image. All kinds of crazy ideas come into people's minds when they try to define humility. But the Scriptures give us a clear definition and picture of humility in the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand the incarnation of Christ, you can't understand humility. Don't even try to talk about it 
Because the Bible is going to define the concept for us. You don't go out into creation somewhere and define the concept independently of the Scripture. You have to start with what the Scripture says. So, we answer the question, who was Jesus when he came? Now, in the early church, they had problems with this as well. How do you put together undiminished deity with true humanity? Well, the first guy to take a shot at it was a guy by the name of Apollinarius. And in Apollinarianism, he diminishes the true humanity of Christ. I lost the title on that slide. In Apollinarianism, he diminished the true humanity of Christ. Here's what a a human being looks like. You're composed of three parts. You have a physical body, you have a human soul, and you have a human spirit. That's what is what makes a human being. Adam was created that way. He, of course, he lost the human spirit when he sinned. But these are the, cre- the three components of true humanity. But in a, when Apollinarius tried to express this, he did it this way. Jesus had a human body, but his soul was really divine. You know, this is what they called the, the, the logos was inserted into this human body. So he has a divine soul, and he has a human spirit, but it's only partly human. Now, the result of this is that Jesus isn't fully God, is he? He's certainly not fully man because he doesn't have a human soul or a fully human spirit. So what you have with Apollinarius construction is someone is a, is a Christ who may be divine, but he's not fully human. Well, that doesn't work. That doesn't properly express what the Scripture says. Scripture says Jesus was truly human. So after several decades of debate, the early church dismissed this. It doesn't accurately represent what the Bible teaches. Then you had another guy who came along, and his name was Nestorius. The problem with Nestorius is he so separated Christ that instead of having one person with two natures, you end up with two people and two natures. So you have almost this multiple personality thing going on. And this is how it would be diagrammed. You ha- they're, they're so separate. And sometimes you hear people talk about Christ in this way. Well, Jesus did this out of his deity. Well, the humanity of Christ did this. The deity of Christ did that. That sounds like you've got two different people functioning there. It's one person. And last time when we talked about this, the Scriptures make it clear that certain things indicate His deity, other things indicate His humanity, but the whole person is there. When Jesus said, I thirst, that clearly indicates His humanity. But the whole person thirsted. The deity doesn't thirst, of course. The deity isn't hungry. Deity doesn't grow tired. But the whole person would be tired. The whole person would hunger. When Jesus expressed his omniscience, that showed his, he was fully God. But it didn't come from his humanity, but the one person knew that. When Jesus turned the water into wine, the person Jesus turned the water into wine, but that was something that, that exhibited his deity and not his humanity. So Nestorianism was rejected because it, it divided Christ too much. And you see, the reason I go through these is because many people still have certain ideas that are similar to either Apollinarianism, uh, Nestorianism, or the third guy is a guy named Eutyches. 
And in his system, Eutychianism, he unites Christ. See, he reacts to that division in, in Nestorianism, and he unites Christ too much so that you have a divine nature that is united with a human nature, and they come together in, in Christ so that the result is the two natures blend together and you really have a third nature. This is like mixing lemon juice with water and it coming up with lemonade. It's not water anymore and it's not lemon juice anymore. It's a third substance. So this, again, destroys the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in the year 451, the early church fathers met together and they decided how the best way was to express what the Scripture teaches. This was written in what was called the Chalcedonian Creed because they met in a village in what is now Turkey called Chalcedon. And there they wrote, and this is the classic definition to understand the person of Christ. We also teach that we apprehend this one and only Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, in two natures. See, there's that terminology. It's two natures, but he's one person. And we do this without confusing the two natures. See, that's what Eutyches did. He mixed them together so you had a third substance. Without confusing the two natures, without transmuting one nature into the other, without that's also Eutychianism, and it would also deal with Apollinarianism, without dividing them into two separate categories, Nestorianism, without contrasting them according to area or function, again, Nestorianism. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. In other words, like with Eutychianism, it's neither God nor man anymore, just a third substance. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved, and both natures concur in one person and into one essence. They are not divided or cut into two persons, which is Nestorianism, but are together the one and only and only begotten Logos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified. See the point? This isn't some sort of abstract Greek theology. This is what the Old Testament prophets prophesied. That's why when we started this series, I started with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Thus have the old prophets of old testified. Thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. Now, that helps us to understand that what is called the hypostatic union, this union of, of two natures, the, the deity and humanity, in the one person of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that significant? I mean, this is profound. This, an understanding of this is changed civilizations has crucial implications, not just for your spiritual life and spiritual growth, but for any relationship you're involved in, any social relationship, your marriage. This is a foundation argument for understanding the role of men and women in marriage. But before we get there, we have to make sure we understand the concept. So we'll go back and take apart Philippians chapter 2 in terms of the details to make sure we understand accurately what the Scripture says. In Bible study, there's three components to Bible study. The first component is observation. That means you accurately understand what the Scripture is saying. Not what it means yet, but what it is saying. If you don't have an accurate understanding of what the Scripture says, then 
you're going to misinterpret it and then misapply it. So that's one of the reasons I take time to go through the, what the original language says in, in Greek or Hebrew so that we understand specifically what the text says. Because a lot of times, because of English language, we don't often understand what it says or it's a mistranslation and you're using a King James Bible or even to some degree the New King James Bible, some of the vocabulary is rather antiquated. So it really doesn't help us understand these things very well. The second element in Bible study is called interpretation. After you know what it says, then you can explain what it means. What did Paul mean? What did he intend to communicate to the Philippians? Not what did they think he meant. See, today we live in a postmodern world that says that meaning comes from what you, the reader, wants to interpret something to mean. doesn't matter what the author intended it to mean. It's what does it mean to you? And you go to a lot of churches and people will sit around and Sunday school classes and they'll say, well, read this scripture and tell us what it means to you. Well, it doesn't really matter what it means to me. What matters is what did the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, intend to communicate. See, if I sit down and read my instructions for income tax, which are due this week in case you forgot, if you sit down and read your, your instructions to fill out your income tax return and you ask the question, what does this mean to me? <laughs> well, we'll come and visit you in jail. We have a prison ministry here and we'll come down and We'll make sure that you have plenty of Bibles and tracts to give to all of your friends. See, that's how most people want to interpret the Bible. What does that mean to you? But we can't live that way. We know that meaning has to do with what the author intends, not what the reader hopes. Okay. Then we get to application. So we've got to go through all those stages so that we can make sure we properly apply the Scripture. Otherwise, we're applying something that may not be true. So Paul starts off with a command. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Greek verb here is the verb phroneo. It's a present active imperative. Now, present imperative means that this is to be a standard operating procedure in the life of a Christian. This is a habit pattern. This is something that should characterize your life day in and day out. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the word for neo means to think. It means to reason. It means to have a certain mental attitude. Now, think about it. A lot of people think that to become a Christian, you just put your brain in neutral, and you just go through a lot of uh, religious exercises, and there's all kinds of things out there that raise questions about Christianity. So we're just not going to worry about anything like that, and we're just going to park our brain in neutral. And uh, that's a false view of Christianity. See, as we've shown many times in our study in Genesis on Wednesday night, is that it is modern man who has the thought problem because he's rejected truth. He's rejected God. And there, uh, you have to have a greater intellectual skill, and you have to. And the Bible always drives you to think. The Christian life is not a life of ritual. It's not a life of morality. It is a life of thinking. Again and again and again, the Scripture says, "Think a certain way," because thought is what underlies everything. 
you get to thinking right, then all these other areas will take care of themselves. So we're commanded to have this mental attitude, have this thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's the pattern is Jesus Christ. Now, how is that the pattern? Verse 6, who? Now he's going to explain this. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? Let's take it apart. The first phrase, who, that refers to Jesus Christ, relative clause, relative pronoun, who, although he existed, and this is the a present active participle, of an anarth- it's an anarthrous participle, which means it's a, it's a concessive adverbial participle. What that means is it's setting up a certain exception, who, although he existed, this is the exception, although Jesus Christ existed in the form of God, despite the fact that Jesus Christ is fully God, he did something. Now, where we're going with this is that Jesus Christ lives his life in his humanity, dealing with all of his problems, all the difficulties, temptations that you or I go through. From the day he grew up, he had to face every kind of situation that you have to face. And every moment he had to make a decision as to how he was going to handle that situation. Is he going to do it on the basis of divine viewpoint, the Word of God, and obey God, or is he going to try to handle the problem independently of God on his own resources, on his own humanity? He had to make that decision every day in and day out, many, many times, every single day. Now, he couldn't do that relying on his deity, because you could look at him and say, oh, no, of course it's easy to handle a problem. He's God. But see, what this is talking about is what he's doing in his humanity. Despite the fact that he's God and has all the attributes of God, he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. Despite the fact that he has all of that ability, that's not how he handled life's problems. He did not rely on his deity to do so. So Paul says, although he existed... And there's an interesting point here in terms of the grammar that it's a present tense participle indicates ongoing existence. Now, there's a little part of Greek grammar that the participle, the verb tense of the participle, when it's a present tense participle, is contemporaneous. That means it goes along at the same time with the main tense of the verb. And the main tense of the verb is a past tense. He did not regard. He did not consider in the past. So this indicates that throughout all of eternity, he had this mental attitude, and throughout all of eternity, he existed, continuous existence in past time, indicating, again, deity. He existed in the form of God. This is the Greek noun morphe, which means form, outward appearance. It can mean outward appearance, shape or expression, but it was also used to refer to the essence of something, what makes you a thing, what it is, the internal essence of something. So then we would translate it, who, although he existed in the essence of God, Jesus Christ possessed all of the attributes of deity. He was sovereign, righteous, just, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, and veracity, all of those. Although he existed in the essence of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, the verb for regard is the verb hegeomai. That's the same word you have in James 1, 2. Count it all joy or consider it all joy. It's another word for thinking. So although he existed in the essence of God, he did not consider, he did not think that equality with God was a thing to be grasped. Hegeomai means to engage in an intellectual process, to think about something to consider something, to regard it. So we should translate it, he did not uh, consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we could translate it now, who, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, did not think that equality with God was something to be held on to. Okay, now that ought to raise a question here. When we're exhorted to have this kind of thinking, is this thinking, this mental attitude, part of his deity or part of his humanity? Remember, the basic command is that we are to have this thinking in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Is this part of his deity or part of his humanity? It's part of his humanity. Because in his humanity, he was living out his spiritual life on a day-to-day basis. So, to get on, go on with the passage, who, although he existed with the identical essence of God, he did not think or consider that equality with God, that is, being the same as God, was something to be held on to. And the word there for grasp is the Greek word harpagmas. Now, this has... Two different ideas. One is the violent seizure of property or robbery. And the second is, it makes it equivalent to a cognate noun, harpagma, that is something which one can claim or assert title to by gripping it or grasping it. And that's the idea here. Is It's in contrast to Adam. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And the serpent comes along and says, you know, God didn't really tell you the whole story about this fruit. So you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, he said you'll die. But the thing is, if you eat it, you'll be like God. That's why he didn't want you to have it. You'll be like God. So they wanted that. They grasped it. They seized it. They wanted to be just like God. In contrast, Jesus Christ, who's called the second Adam, is fully God. He has all of the attributes of deity, but he he doesn't hold on to that. He doesn't grasp it. He doesn't seize it. He doesn't hold on to it like Adam did. He's willing to relinquish the use of those attributes. He's willing to relinquish their use. Now, often when I've taught this in the past, and you've heard it from others, it's a classic definition of of this passage and the understanding of, of kenosis that we'll come to in a minute, is it's a relinquishing of the independent use of his attributes. Now, when we think about this a little more precisely, I have a problem with the use independent. And that is because the second person of the Trinity never operated independently of the first person of the Trinity. So we have a problem there. But what we're trying to get at is the idea is that Jesus Christ never tried to solve the problems he faced in his humanity by relying on his deity. He never said, okay, Father, I'm going to go my own way here. Your, God's plan was for him to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ never operated independently of that. He is going to live his life, his spiritual life, in dependence on the Holy Spirit. 
So that's the idea. Philippians 2, 6 then should be translated, who, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, although he eternally existed with identical essence to God, did not think equality with God was a claim to be asserted. In other words, he was willing to live as a creature with creaturely limitations in order to demonstrate to the creature how to live his life. In contrast to grasping after deity, verse 7 says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, what does that say? But starts off with Allah, which is a strong adversative conjunction in the Greek. So there's a strong contrast between the idea of, of asserting his rights, asserting his title to deity. In contrast, he empties himself, which is the Greek verb kenao. It's an aorist active indicative. It just refers to an action in past time without reference to its beginning, duration, or completion. He emptied himself. What does it mean to empty himself? See, some people say, well, what Jesus did was he gave up his deity or he disguised his deity. Or some people would say, well, he just gave up the use of his omni-characteristics, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. But see, as a baby, Jesus Christ is still in his deity holding the world together. It's, it's, in a sense, it's veiled, but what we're really getting at here is that Jesus Christ as a creature is going to live as a creature was intended to live in dependence upon God. And he's not going to access his deity in order to do it. Because then we wouldn't have a model. We would say, well, of course he did it. He's God. That's what a lot of people think in order to just rationalize disobedience. But the text makes it clear what emptied himself means. Always look at the context. He emptied himself. And the first verbal that's used here is lambano. It's an aorist active participle, and it doesn't have an article, so that means it's adverbial of means. How did he empty himself? That's what it's expressing. How did he empty himself? By means of taking on something, of receiving something. So emptying himself really isn't the idea of giving up. It's the idea of adding something to. See, his deity takes on humanity. So he empties himself, first of all, by taking the form of a bondservant. And there we have that same word again, morphe, that's used in the, in the Greek indicating an uh, internal essence. So he takes, on, he takes on the essence of a bondservant. He is eternal God, the ultimate authority in the universe, but he takes on to himself the essence of a servant or a slave. Well, I lost a word there. Here's the construction in English. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The second participle was genomai, which has to do with something coming into existence. So it should be translated, he emptied himself, first of all, by taking the form or the essence, the nature of a servant, and by coming into existence in the physical form of man. By coming into existence in the physical form form of man. That's the essence of what happens at the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ empties himself by doing two things. First of all, he takes on the essence of a servant, 
which is talking about his inner nature, the inner nature of true humanity, and coming into existence. That is a key concept. By coming into existence, you're talking about something that wasn't existing, something that is now existing. And that's the, it happened at the incarnation. Okay, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now see, this is where we're headed. We've gone through three verses that are tough sledding. I mean, this will stretch your brain a lot trying to understand this. But the point is to understand what it means to have humility. So in verse 8, we're t- we began being found, which is the aorist passive participle of heurisco. He is found, he is seen in his humanity at the incarnation, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Now this is, the word appearance has to do with the with the word schema, it's the generally recognized state or form, outward appearance, shape of something. So he is found, he's discovered to be in the physical form or shape of man. You can't say, well, with just an appearance. He is the physical form of man. He's truly man. And he humbles himself. This is a Greek word, tapanao. Now, this is an interesting concept in the Greek. This means someone who's not going to assert their rights to something. Here is somebody who has every right to something, but they're not going to assert it. And I remember when I, was, uh, when I first did a detailed study of this passage before I ever went to seminary, I was teaching in a uh, junior-senior high school. My first job out of college, I really didn't teach like a regular teacher in the classroom. Back in those days, they were trying to figure out good ways to discipline students. And, of course, money always comes into play, so they decided that instead of suspending these male factors, they would just have a sort of a jail on campus that they called a special assignment class. And instead of suspending kids and sending them home, they would suspend them and send them to me. (laughs) And I had just had four wonderful years in ROTC, and I thought this was my opportunity to teach a little military discipline to these juvenile delinquents. They hated me with a passion. But one of the things you always heard every time you were going to discipline some snotty-nosed little rebellious delinquent, well, I have a right to do this. I have a right. You don't have, any, you don't have a right to tell me what to do. Now, there's always asserting their rights. Well, that's pure arrogance. See, it's just the opposite of this word, tapainao which is spelled T-A-P-E-I-N-O-O. It's the exact opposite. It's someone who who clearly has every legal and ethical right to something and says, I'm not going to assert that. Instead, I am going to be treated as if I don't have a right to that. I'm going to give up my rights to what I have a title to. This is what Jesus is doing. He humbles himself. So humility doesn't have to do with self-degradation. It has to do with placing yourself under the proper authority to see yourself in proper relationship 
to reality. So Jesus humbles himself how? By becoming obedient to the point of death. And we've studied that concept that becoming is the Greek participle genomai, which means that Jesus in his humanity is in the process of becoming obedient. He has to learn obedience day in and day out. When Adam was created, Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. He had perfect righteousness, but it was untested, untried righteousness. Each moment, Adam had to make a decision, either actively or passively, not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As he, each day went by, he, he accumulated and strengthened his righteousness. Decision after decision after decision until he blew it. So Jesus, in his humanity, was born as an infant. And in his humanity, he has to grow up. He has to learn language. He has to learn how to speak. He has to learn how to walk. He has to learn uh, the Bible. He has to learn the Old Testament the same way that you and I do. He has to go through all of those same processes in the same way. And every time he made a decision, he chose to do it God's way. He chose to be obedient in his humanity by relying upon God the Holy Spirit in leading his life and directing him and by applying Scripture. So he humbles himself by becoming obedient even to the extremity of physical death even the death on a cross, which was the most humiliating death possible. This is a death only the lowest of the lowest criminals went through. It was, it was a, a horrible death. Nothing was more shameful, nothing was, was more degrading than the death on a cross. So this is the concept of the kenosis, is that Jesus limits the use of his deity as he is living out his humanity. So there are important implications of this. Now we've studied the concept. We've understood what kenosis means. But why is this important? What's the significance here? And that's what we'll have to get into next time. We have to first understand the concept, and next we're going to understand how this is a basis for Paul's exhortation and authority in marriage. This is a basis for dealing with authority in any area of life because humility is essentially a recognition that even though I have certain rights, I'm going to give them up in certain circumstances in terms of obedience to God. We have to understand, have that authority orientation to God in order to have humility. So the basis for this is understanding who Jesus Christ is and what he did in the incarnation. And the purpose was to provide salvation. He went to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty for every sin in human history so that there's nothing that you can ever do that is too great for the grace of God. You don't have to beg God to save you. You don't have to go through any process of, of, uh, of moral reformation. You don't have to get involved with the church and go through a lot of ritual it's simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. That's why the Scripture says that if you want to be saved, all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to come to a greater appreciation of who Jesus Christ is. 
that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity, that he is fully God, but at the incarnation he took onto himself true humanity. And in his humanity he lived a life in complete dependence upon you, uh, learning the word of God, living on the power of God the Holy Spirit. He pioneered our Christian life. He pioneered our spiritual life. He laid the basis for helping us to understand how we as your creatures are to properly live in terms of obedience and dependence upon you, the Creator. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their uh, eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. Right where you sit, all you need to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to pray a prayer. You don't need to uh, change your life. You don't need to get involved in some sort of ritual. Scripture says simply believe, trust, rely upon Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. God is omniscient. At the instant you decide to trust Christ as your salvation, he knows that. And at that instant you are saved, you're regenerated, you're justified. God provides 39 things for you that are irrevocable absolutes. Father, we thank you for what we've studied today. We pray that you would help us to further refine our understanding of who our Savior is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.